the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Ron Bryce. He is the author of Fingerprint of God, the Church Living as a Body. It's a rather interesting approach from a medical doctor who describes what a body and how that system works. It's very different from an organization. So I'm looking forward to that conversation coming up at the bottom of this hour. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Well, President Trump has called for a sweeping overhaul to the asylum system. He's uh, long said is rife with fraud, including a few um, fee to process asylum applicants and the uh, capacity to rapidly adjudicate applicants claims, while also barring them from working in the U.S. in the meantime. In a presidential memorandum, uh, the the, uh, president specifically told Attorney General Barr and acting Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McLeanan, Uh, that the move was necessary to address the crisis at the border. Arrests along the southern border have skyrocketed in recent months, with border agents making more than 100,000 arrests or denials of entry in March. A uh, a 12-year high, immigration courts have processed asylum claims currently. They have a backlog of more than 800,000 cases. President Trump filed a lawsuit Monday against Deutsche Bank and Capital One in an attempt to block congressional subpoenas for his business records, claiming House Democrats are simply attempting to harass him. Two House committees subpoenaed Deutsche Bank and several other financial institutions earlier this month as part of an investigation into the president's financing. The uh, lawsuit by Trump, his sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, and his daughter, Ivanka, was filed in Manhattan Federal Court. The Trump Organization and the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust are among the um, other plaintiffs. Politico reported that in a joint statement, Democratic Representative Maxine Waters, chairwoman of the Financial Services Committee, and Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, called the Trump suit meritless and claimed it was a delay tactic. Well, the court will decide if it's meritless. We'll find out that uh, the answer to that question soon rather than later. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters on Monday night that the president has demonstrated on a daily basis his obstruction of justice amid a conflict between the White House and Congress over the terms of scheduled testimony by Attorney General William Barr. So even after the Mueller report has been completed, it's been made public, Um, They're referring to efforts to protect himself as obstruction from the way this is handled in Congress. Barr scheduled to testify before the Senate and House Judiciary panels this week on special counsel Robert Mueller's report. However, the Justice Department informed the House committee on Sunday that Barr would not attend the scheduled Thursday hearing if committee lawyers sought to question him. He is only willing to submit to questions from members of Congress. When asked if she had a message for Barr Monday evening, Pelosi said, respect the Constitution, honor your oath of office, honor the request of Congress for the American people. Well, Congress uh, has requested his presence. He's willing to do that, but he's unwilling to speak to attorneys. Now, what that means legally or constitutionally, I'm not clear, but that will have to be resolved. The skirmish over Barr's testimony came as Deputy Attorney General um, uh, Rod Rosenstein submitted his long-anticipated resignation, effective 
the 11th of May. The growing tension could add even more intrigue to Tuesday's scheduled meeting between Trump, Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, which actually already took place and surprisingly was cordial, according to everyone involved in the meeting. It was on national infrastructure and some rather interesting things came out of that. Talk about it later. House Democrats will hold their first ever hearing on Medicare for all legislation, advancing a sweeping proposal that several prominent 2020 presidential hopefuls uh, have embraced, even as some progressives caution that the uh, uh, hearing may amount to a farce. You'll excuse the interruption. <laughs> Clark just pointed out the window and there is a British double decker bus making the rounds in the parking lot here. What on earth might that be? I've never seen that in all the years I've been in this building. Well, it's a showstopper, quite literally. <laughs> in any event, the hearing took place uh, earlier today. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, some have suggested that the hearing may amount to a farce. President Trump and top Republicans call the idea socialist prescription for disaster. The uh, Rules Committee hearing concerns the Medicare for All Act of 2019, which promises to rapidly provide coverage for all people living in the United States within two years. According to the current draft of the bill and a summary released by the Washington Democrat, Pamela J. Powell. And Hollywood is mourning the loss of Oscar-nominated writer and director John Singleton. The 51-year-old voice in the hood director died on Monday after having been in a coma for 12 days following a stroke. Singleton's family made an agonizing decision to remove him from life support. Stars flooded social media to pay tribute to Singleton, remembering him as an iconic director and a trailblazer in his industry. Um, I was discovered by a master filmmaker by the name of John Singleton. Ice Cube, who starred in Boys in the Hood, wrote on Twitter alongside a photo of the two of them at the Cannes Film Festival in the 90s. Uh, He not only made uh, me a movie star, he went on to say, but made me a filmmaker. There are no words to express how sad I am to lose my brother, friend and mentor. He um, loved to bring the black experience to the world, end quote. Well, the Associated Press reports President Donald Trump, his family and uh, the Trump Organization filed lawsuit against uh, the Deutsche Bank. And uh, Capital, uh, Capital One, to try to protect their information. That lawsuit uh, will be decided in the courts, despite some suggesting it's simply a stall tactic and frivolous. The judge will decide. President Trump called Monday night for a sweeping overhaul of the asylum system. And um, Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke released a $5 trillion plan to combat climate change. Trillion dollars, five. Over the next decade, with a goal of achieving net zero emissions by the U.S. in 2050. Now, it's interesting to see if uh, that will include nuclear power as a as a way of generating energy, uh, because some of the other renewable energy sources there, you can't store them. Anyway, the former congressman said that he would put the U.S. back in the Paris Agreement if elected and seek legislation in his first 100 days in office to set a legally enforceable requirement that the nation remove as much greenhouse gases as it emits with half of that goal completed by 2030. Now, we don't yet have the technology to actually pull that off, but it sure sounds good in a campaign if that's a major issue for you. And apparently a recent poll indicates that that's the number one issue for Democrats at this moment. Sunrise Movement Executive Director um, Varshini Prakash lamented Beto claims to support the Green New Deal, but his plan is out of line with the timeline it lays out and the scale of action that scientists say is necessary to take here in the United States to give our generation a livable future, end quote. I have some other ideas about a livable future, but we'll talk about that on another 
uh, program, and you can learn more about it on virtually every other program heard here on KPDQ. The top two Democratic leaders on Monday told President Trump that any bipartisan infrastructure package needs to take into consideration climate change and include substantial new and real revenue, a preview of the coming fight over tax hikes. Democrats want the measure for roads, bridges, waterways and other projects to be paid for with tax increases and with a final price tag of at least one trillion dollars over 10 years. Now, in the meeting with Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer earlier today, uh, Schumer came out of the meeting suggesting that the president had agreed on two trillion dollars for infrastructure. And again, many are scratching their heads in an election year. You would uh, suggest a plan like that would require that would require major tax increases uh, rather interesting preliminary um, glimpse at what apparently was uh, talked about in that meeting. Well, the New York Times deleted a political cartoon over the weekend after acknowledging that it contained anti-Semitic tropes. An episode decried at the latest example, or rather as the latest example, of rising anti-Semitism on the left. The Washington Times notes, adding that the New York Times editor's note was described by some as an apology, although the message did not actually apologize for running the cartoon. In a statement, the American Jewish Committee said it would not accept the non-apology. How many at New York Times editors looked at a cartoon that would have uh, looked out uh, out of place on a white supremacist website and thought it uh, met the paper's editorial standards, they rhetorically asked. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. Just a reminder, uh, coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk with Dr. Ron Bryce. He's the author of Fingerprint of God, The Church, Living as a Body. As a physician, he has a unique insight into how we are described as the body of Christ and what uh, what that entails. Well, according to the Colorado Springs Gazette, the first openly gay general at the Air Force Academy has been removed as com- the commandant of cadets, but leaders are mum on the exact cause of the apparent firing. The reason Brigadier General Christian Goodwin was tapped for this post is unfortunate. She wasn't unqualified, but she had a special qualification that other uh, equally skilled candidates didn't, gender dysphoria. Furthermore, she was removed one month before her rotation would have ended, so there must be something there, or she would have just finished up. That's a quote from an observer. Well, Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido uh, took to the streets with activist Leopoldo Lopez and a small contingent of heavy armed troops early today. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But it was a bold and risky call for the military to rise up and oust socialist leader Nicolas Maduro. I want to tell the Venezuelan people this is the moment to take to the streets and accompany these patriotic soldiers, Lopez said, who had been detained since 2014 for leading anti-government protest. Everyone should come to the streets in peace. Well, unrest has continued throughout the day. And almost five years after he was last seen publicly, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has made a reappearance in an online video hailing his fighters for not giving up the remnants of the caliphate in Syria without a fight and urging supporters to carry out attacks in France, Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. And on this day in 1975, the Vietnam War ends as the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon falls to communist forces. On this day in 1912, Universal Studios has its beginnings as papers incorporating the Universal Film Manufacturing Company are filed, recorded in New York State. And on this day in 1789, George Washington takes the oath of office in New York as the first president of the United States. 
Well, emboldened supporters of opposition leader Juan Guaido brutally clashed with Venezuelan security forces as dramatic footage you can find almost anywhere from Caracas showed a military armored vehicle plowing into crowds. Uh, In a video broadcast live on telecasts across the world, the armored vehicle can be seen driving over the center of a road, hitting a uh, a crowd of demonstrators uh, purportedly throwing rocks at security forces. No injuries were immediately reported. Senator Marco Rubio denounced the actions by the security forces, saying the military and security leaders must realize they are and will be held re- responsible for this. The dramatic events come after Guaido, alongside detained activist Leopoldo Lopez, called for a military uprising this morning in his boldest action to oust the socialist leader, Nicolas Maduro. The armed forces have taken the right decision, Guaido said, earlier in the day with the support of the Venezuelan people and the backing of our constitution they are on the right side of history the moment is now he added well the 35 year old leader of the opposition led national assembly and a small contingent of heavily armed soldiers appeared in an early morning video promoting the final phase of his push to oust maduro the united states has supported guaido's claim as have many of the international in the international community as interim president of venezuela offered its support of the opposition and its support Supporters. To Juan Guaido, the National Assembly, and all the freedom-loving people of Venezuela who are taking to the streets today in Operation Liberated, or it's in Spanish, I won't attempt to pronounce it, we are with you, America will stand with you until freedom and democracy are restored. Violent Condios, Vice President Mike Pence wrote on Twitter, the White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the president had been briefed on the ongoing situation there and they were monitoring. And meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the U.S. fully supports the Venezuelan people in their quest for freedom and democracy. Democracy cannot be defeated, he went on to say. Well, with the presence of Cuba and Russia, it's going to be a battle. Troops loyal to Maduro sporadically fired tear gas from outside the uh, Carlotto um, air base, a crowd that quickly swelled to a few thousand, scurried for cover with a smaller group of masked youths resembling, uh, uh, reassembling rather outside the air base's gates where they lobbed rocks and other heavy objects and it continued throughout um, the evening. Well, Venezuela is a human catastrophe. The evidence is brutally visible and can no longer be explained away by apologists for tyranny. So many people enamored with the long debunked theories, high hopes that uh, for Venezuela, despite the enormous historical and empirical evidence to the contrary, the promise of socialism would work and would uh, would not lead to the loss of liberties or drive the once prosperous nation into poverty. Looking back on the 20th century, we should turn to some of the most prominent thinkers who lived under similar conditions and dissect their experiences for us to learn from. Venezuela's crisis is a good example of harsh lessons learned by one generation but forgotten by the next. In 1944, Frederick Hayek, he warned in the Road to Serfdom that tyranny inevitably results when a government exercises complete control of the economy through central planning. Over half a century ago, beginning with Hugo Chavez's revolution, Venezuela began its own road to serfdom by expropriating thousands of businesses and even entire industries. The more fortunate companies left before it was too late, while the businesses that remained were handed over to the Venezuelan military, under whose oversight they were neglected into ruins. In a typical demonstration of class warfare, the government publicly vilified those business owners as unpatriotic, greedy lackeys. Uh, of American interests, claiming that Venezuela's poverty had been a direct result of their existence. Chavismo created an atmosphere of distrust in which uh, no uh, no one felt safe 
uh, safe enough to invest in Venezuela. More important, the courts were no longer a place to get redress. Since 1999, the Venezuelan judiciary had been systematically stacked with judges loyal to the executive. 20 years after socialism took hold in the country, Venezuela has uh, hit rock bottom on every possible um, uh, development index. A prime example of this divorce between intentions and actual consequences is price controls. In 2014, Venezuela's new uh, fair price law capped the price of goods and services and established a sentence of up to 14 years in prison for those caught hoarding, overcharging or trafficking food. There's ample uh, economic history revealing the consequences of price controls, which disrupt the equilibrium price set through the interaction between supply and demand. The price ceilings in Venezuela, in the case of Venezuela, rather effectively led to long queues, empty grocery stores and ultimately starving citizens. The government set prices artificially low, which resulted in skyrocketing demand and the overcompensation of basic goods. On the other hand, producers started to make less because it had become unprofitable to sell their products within Venezuela. Instead, they started sending their goods abroad or to the black market where sellers face prison time for their activity and usually need to pay kickbacks to continue operating. Well, these risks are reflected in higher prices. The real life consequences of this misguided policy very telling. Venezuela lost an average of 24 pounds uh, in the year of 2017 alone, and it's only gotten worse since then. Well, just uh, this afternoon, we learned that the uh, Venezuela's disputed president, Nicolas Maduro, was ready to leave the country with the protests and violence that took place, the calls for his ouster, until Russia apparently uh, convinced him to stay. That's according to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He was ready to go, Pompeo said uh, on a special report. He was diverted by the Russians. He noted he wanted Maduro, whom he called the thug, to get back on that plane. The U.S. and about 50 other nations have taken the position that Maduro's re-election last year was marred with fraud and that he's not the legitimate president of Venezuela, a once prosperous nation that has the world's largest proven oil reserves. The U.S. government said about 20,000 Cuban troops and agents have been working in Venezuela to prop up Maduro's government, a figure that's disputed by Cuba. And Pompeo said the Cubans and Russians have been direct uh, in direct opposition of Venezuela's duly elected leader, Juan Guaido. He noted that the 14 countries supporting Maduro uh, were on the wrong side of history and that the rule of law and democracy must be restored. And in the meantime, the president has threatened Cuba with full and complete embargo, the highest level sanctions, citing their role in Venezuela's upheaval. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. What's the difference between an organism and an organization? The Bible describes us, the church, as the body of Christ. What does that mean exactly? And how does that differ from an organization if, in fact, it does? And how might an ER doctor help us better understand what a body, how it functions, and how we can draw from that analogy to understand what it is that God uh, has called us to and described us as already being. Well, my next guest is Dr. Ron Bryce. He's an emergency room physician in Dallas. He earned his medical degree in 1986 from Oral Roberts University's Medical School, a former member of the ORU Alumni Association Board. In 2016, they honored him as Alumnus of the Year. He is a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations and served as 
the um, uh, Texas representative from 2011 to 2015. He is a longtime follower of Jesus and the author of Fingerprint of God, The Church as a Living Body. Dr. Um, Bryce, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Georgine. It's great to talk to you. You make the point that the more you learned as a practicing physician, the more you came to view the body of Christ in biological terms, and that helped you to better understand what it is that we are described as uh, as being. Right. You know, when I was growing up in the church, I heard the term body of Christ, and it just became kind of a cliche in a sense, it, and it just kind of seemed like a, a bunch of Christians was just the body of Christ, like a student body might be the members of a, of a college or school. And But the older I got, the more I went to the medical school and some life events that happened to me, I started to see that the way Paul describes the living body of Christ in the New Testament is not just a collection of people uh, like a fraternal organization. It's actually members of a living body that have connections together that resemble in a lot of ways the way God put together other living bodies, like our human body. And so I, I, as I studied this, I began to become fascinated that maybe as we are members of the Church, we aren't meant to be members of a human organization that we've set up, but it's actually, on some level, a living spiritual organism that we're members of. And I, I explore that in the book, Body of Christ. Now, one of the things that you, the points that you make is that only God can create life, um, and it, it tells us something about the nature of the body of Christ, the Church. It's not something that we formulate on our own. It's something that he does in and through us that makes it very unique and different from a fraternal organization, a business, or um, an organization of any other kind. Right. You know, uh, the body of Christ, really, as Paul describes it, is not so much a human organization like we see the church building with the pews and we have services on Sunday morning. That's the church, but the body of Christ exists on a spiritual level. And if I could just tell a quick story, I was working in the ER one day. It was a Sunday morning. I had to work in the ER, and a nice, well-dressed lady came in and had a little chest pain that went away, and I was evaluating her, and I would go in, uh, check on her as we ran her tests, and I went in to just hold her hand for a minute, and all of her tests were coming back normal, and she was just staring out the door of the exam room, and she said, who are they coming for? And I just... I, I didn't know what she was talking about, and maybe she was hallucinating something, you know? And, and then she looked at me and said, are they coming for you? And then she looked back out the door and said, no, they're coming for me. And her heart immediately went to flat line, just a poo, and we did a code blue. And she had seen something at the time of her demise of the spiritual realm. She saw beings coming towards her, and I think that describes how we have the spiritual reality all around us all the time we have no way of really comprehending it, just like AM, FM radios around us, but if we don't have a receiver, we can't really listen in. But this lady saw something on a spiritual level, and I just wanted to, to I just came to find out through studying the Scripture that the body, of the, the living body of Christ does exist, but it's on this spiritual level, and we're members of it. Mm. You begin your introduction with a quote from a Swiss New Testament scholar, 
Edward Schweitzer, in which he writes, we shall never understand the, the nature of the human body if we begin thinking about the single members severed from the body and try to conceive of the body as a mere sum of hundreds of those members. We shall never understand Paul's concept of the church if we begin our theological thinking with the individual Christian and consider the church as something like a social gathering or an association of individuals sharing some common interests. Talk a little bit about the implications of understanding this God-formed, developed, sustained, and maintained body that we are described as as, uh, as the Church? Well, I think he was very insightful, and I, what I've experienced in Western uh, Christianity, in our Western culture that we're brought up in, uh, sort of a, a fishbowl, we know nothing but the Western culture, a lot of us in, in America, we see ourselves as an individual tied with Christ, and that's the relationship of us being a, a follower of Christ. It's just, uh, in Texas, we say, Jesus and me, we've got our own thing going. You know, some some uh, people feel like as long as they have their relationship with Christ, they are fulfilling what he has called them to be. But as as uh, the uh, Schweitzer said, as, the, as we become a member of a living body, it's the connections with other believers. It's, it's how we interact with each other, as 1 Corinthians 13 describes godly love, uh, agape love, and how we're to be connected together and mentor each other and raise, you know, weep with those that weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And as we become intimately tied in with other believers, the body itself, I think, actually arises if Christ is the head and the presence of Christ in the body. But if we try to see ourselves as individuals and lone Christians, it's it's uh, really uh, not fulfilling the the rich nature of the body of Christ. So being a part of the body of Christ isn't just a preference. I choose to go or I don't. It's it's God's pattern and design uh, for the church. Right. You know, I could tell just another quick story. When I was in medical school, I was working in the physiology lab, and we had some some uh, living cells from a heart of a of a frog, and we were we had them in solution. We're looking at them under the microscope, and these cells were separated out, and uh, you could see them separate from each other. And each one of these heart cells, by nature, has a beat to it, like a metronome. So they were each beating with their own uh, rate. When two of them touch each other, the second they touch each other, they begin to beat in unison. And as another one touches them, they all begin beating in unison. And that goes to show you that the maybe the a heart cell in a human body is called to pump blood. Maybe that's the reason for having a heart. But if a single heart cell doesn't have the others working with it, there's no way one little heart cell can pump any blood, no matter how good they are, no matter how hard they try. They need each other, and we all need each other. In the body of Christ, uh, he made us each uh, faulty in some sense. We're ne- none of us is complete without each other. We need each other to fulfill our purpose as members of the body of Christ. Later in the program, I'm going to reference a new Gallup poll that indicates um, more and more people are choosing not to associate with uh, church at all. They're not attending, they're not members of, and so on. And how much does that um, play into the church's fading influence in the culture, from your perspective? I think that's a reaction to the fading influence. Uh, a lot of us have felt for a long time that the church is, a, in a sense, a human organization, a human business that we run with the pastor, the CEO. We put on performances on Sunday morning, basically, with, with lights and sound and 
and music, and we we perform, and the people in the pews or the seats or the spectators. That's kind of a a real business-oriented view of the body of Christ. If there's a, a we are to be a living body, there's much more of a connection. You know, I've I've actually kind of done my own experiment. I've walked through big mega churches before when I visited another town, and I remember walking through one in Atlanta, and I was just smiling at everyone I met. I went through the whole service, and and no one spoke a word to me. No one connected with me. And, I, and it just bothered me that there was not that human connection that is so needed in the body of Christ. But as we run the church as a human organization, uh, the same uh, faults that are in the world come into the church. For instance, about 25% of active pastors have had an affair while in the ministry. Uh, the rate of abortion is, is about the same. One-third of all women in, in evangelical churches have had an abortion. It's about the same as uh, in the uh, secular world. And so the world becomes influencing of the body of Christ. The body of Christ has not become separate from the world. If I could just tell a quick uh, another ER story. Sure, go ahead. I had a, I had a patient a, a few winters ago. It was very, very cold uh, here in Texas, and some of the ponds were frozen over. And a young man, about 16, he, he was walking out over the frozen pond. He fell in. He was submerged for maybe 45 minutes, but because of the cold water, when they brought him to me in the emergency room, uh, we worked for hours on him and finally were able to get his heart going again. But it just so happens that when his body becomes one with the environment around it, in other words, his body becomes freezing temperature, uh, he, he is no longer able to be alive and function as a living body. And when we in the body of Christ incorporate the ways of the world, and we try to win the world by being better at the ways of the world than, than they are with our entertainment and our business acumen, well, then we're not really functioning in a living way that can be effective. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book that helps us better understand from a medical point of view what this description of us as followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ, that unity that is required in order for an organism to function. The book is titled Fingerprint of God, The Church as a Living Body. My guest, Dr. Ron Bryce, an emergency room physician. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Dr. Ron Bryce. He's the author of Fingerprint of God, The Church as a Living uh, Body. He writes that, As I learned more about the science of living bodies, though, I came to understand that God intended us to be much more than a random collection of individuals. Created by God, the church should exhibit characteristics of life similar to those of other living organisms. Um, they differ in several respects. People cannot create living things or organisms. They can fashion organizations as a means to reach goals. But God alone creates life and all the living things that have ever uh, existed. This is something, this is the work of God in and among us. And that's one of the major distinctions between an organism and an organization uh, that um, distinguishes the body of Christ from just another random collection of uh, of people, uh, describe some of the, the the systems in the body 
um, that help us better understand what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. I know one of the things that struck me was the unity, that things had to function in unity. And you went down to the cellular level, which I hadn't thought about in terms of the body of Christ. But that, I thought, was very enlightening for me. Give us some indication of some of the things about the body that help us better, better understand how we are to relate to one another as the body of Christ. Right. Uh, unity in combination with diversity is is a characteristic of life. And I don't mean diversity in the politically correct mm-hmm. I mean yeah. diverse gifts that are described in, for instance, in Romans chapter 12. There are many members in one body with diverse gifts. And that, if, if Paul could have studied medicine or biology in the 21st century, he could have written much, I think he could have written much, much more in uh, in his writings. But in the, as a first century uh, writer with very limited uh, uh, scientific knowledge, he described a living body and the way it's composed in such elegant terms. I can't help but think that he, if he had Luke, a physician, uh, as his uh, attendant and, and colleague, traveling all over the known world, and I guess Luke was tending to whatever physical ailments Paul might have had, I'm sure they had many conversations about what was known about living bodies at the time. And Paul just pulls this term, body of Christ, out of the air, it almost seems, coined the term. And I think there's just rich, rich meaning in that. But just to get to to what you were talking about, if you think about uh, someone who has, for instance, a very uh, good knowledge of of art, say they they can look at a painting in a museum, and just by looking at the way the individual uh, elements of the painting are put together. They, they know who the, the painter is. They know who the artist is. Like you could tell a, a Norman Rockwell what a painting from a Rembrandt if you were to go to a museum because there are characteristics that each artist has that they uh, reflect onto what they create. The same with music, a Beethoven sonata. You could, you could, if you hear one and you, you're good in music and you could recognize it's a Beethoven sonata, maybe you've never even heard it before, but you see how the elements are put together, and you know who the composer was. God is the creator of all living things. Mankind cannot create living things. And as the artist or the creator of all living things, he leaves his fingerprint, or he, leaves, he reveals his nature. He puts his, his, his print on all living things, and these are the attributes of life. If a living body... Uh, I taught a high school biology class, uh, by the way, for for one semester while I was uh, teaching in a medical school in Louisiana, and and the students learned in that biology class that a thing can be thought of as being alive if it had certain attributes, such as, uh, you know, the unity plus diversity, uh, the way it uh, is made of cells, the way the cells reproduce, the way that there's growth and development and maturity, in different scientific terms for all these things. If the body of Christ is to be alive and a living body, it should reflect also some of these attributes of life that all living bodies have. That's God's fingerprint on its creation. And, and come to find out, if you do study uh, what a, the body of Christ should be, what the church should be in the New Testament, Paul writes about these, these uh, attributes in a way that is very, very beautiful. And so I've, I've incorporated how the, the attributes of life in a human body can be compared to the 
attributes of life if we have revival and are alive in the body of Christ. And that th- those are such interesting passages in your book. Again, we're talking about fingerprint of God, the church as a living body, and it helped me to f- understand um, more f- uh, fully what it means to be the body of Christ. And certain options really are not a part of that picture. Going it alone, for example, is not one of them. Now, one of the things that you, one of the points that you make is that there are implications to seeing ourselves as the scripture describes us as the body of Christ or seeing ourselves as a collection of people in the business model and the way we, for example, approach difficult subjects, the way we deal with controversy and so on. Um, can be influenced largely by how we see ourselves and how we describe ourselves, either as biblically um, or as a, a business model. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Um, one thing uh, I might want to bring up is just more on a personal note. When I first started working on this book many years ago, I, I myself I've just become a physician, and I developed a neurological disease, and it, it was called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it's a disease where my immune system, one part of my body, attacks another part of my body, my nerve cells, as if it's foreign to the body. And so I became quadriplegic. I became paralyzed in a hospital and ICU. I, and I, I thought my life was over. I was there for many months. But when I was lying there, paralyzed and unable to, to move, well-meaning people from my church would come to pray with me. And some, it, it, it was fascinating to me that some people wanted to find my faults, that it caused my illness, and they they wanted to find hidden sins in my life, and they were they were almost attacking me at the time. And I was laying there thinking, it's almost the same thing happening in my human body. It's happening in a more of a relationship and spiritual realm, where one member of the body attacks another member of the body as if it's not truly a member. And there is there are disease processes like the Graves' disease of the thyroid and rheumatoid arthritis and the disease I had and many many more where one member of the body decides another shouldn't be there and they attack them. Uh, there is also, uh, there are other diseases where uh, maybe there's not enough discernment and maybe you allow, for instance, AIDS has become uh, over the last 30 years or so just a prominent illness. That's a disease where the, the guard is down and any, any infection, any foreign invading organism can come into the body and there's no there's no uh, uh, wall of defense, and so that's the other extreme where where a human body can have uh, a disease similar to what happens in the body of Christ when we let in, for instance, what we would think of heresy or false teaching or or maybe the the ways of the world. Like I know you've been involved with some of the cultural things in America, and, and if the church doesn't take a stand for what is biblical and orthodox, we we become like the the disease process where anything goes, and we allow foreign, uh, foreign worldly uh, uh, ways of thinking into the church, and the, the body becomes ill and needs to be uh, healed by God. Well, there is so much more in Fingerprint of God that we won't have time to talk about. But as a physician, the way you address them in the context of what it means to be uh, the church, the living body, uh, really helped me to better appreciate what God is doing in and among us as we are connected to one another. Dr. Bryce, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It was my pleasure. Really appreciate it. By the way, where can our listeners find your book? It's published by Brown Christian Press. Uh, my book, the easiest way is to go to fingerprintofgodbook.com, 
there are blogs there about the book and the subject matter. You can also click on links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ChristianBook.com, different booksellers, but it's uh, FingerprintOfGodBook.com. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Bryce. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Hey, the program Better Together, it's in its second week. And I'm telling you, it remains a stellar option for women who are looking for fellowship with other women. Now, I know that might sound a little odd because you're sitting on one side of a screen and they're in the <laughs> on the other side. But this is a kind of conversation that you really can feel a part of. I'm talking about TBN's new program, Better Together, because after all, why do life alone? We can do it better together. Well, it's um, the three ways you can watch. You can watch it on TBN, 1030 a.m., right here in the uh, Pacific time zone, uh, Monday through Friday. You can download the TBN app or you can go to uh, visit bettertogether.tv and register to watch anytime. So they also make available what their topics are going to be so that you can decide, yeah, that's that's one I really want to sit in on. And one of the cool things is you join um, uh, Lori Crouch and a collection of women that rotates in and out, people whose names you would probably probably recognize musicians and speakers and authors and women of influence, women who have experienced the same kinds of insecurity that's common among us, who have faced the challenges of parenting and being married or being single and fitting into the church and just dealing with the lies of the enemy. All these kinds of topics are discussed in a way that not only uh, is vulnerable, these women are, are telling their story in a very deep and profound way, but they always point our attention to Christ. How do we respond to these challenges? There's prayer time. There's an opportunity to look at Scripture. They talk about how they have dealt with particular things. And I think you're going to find it edifying and challenging and encouraging a way to start to start the day or the middle of the day or the middle of the night because you can pick it up streaming as well. Again, there are three ways to watch. You can watch it at 1030 a.m. on TBN. You can download the TBN app or you can visit bettertogether.tv and register to watch any time. Better Together. Sounds like a good plan to me for doing life as women. Well, we have um, been winding our way through some of the news uh, headlines of the day and also talking with a physician whose book I appreciated because as a medical uh, professional, as a doctor, he offered some insight into what it means to function as an organism that I, as a layperson, had no really appreciation for. So if you didn't get the opportunity to hear the conversation or you're interested in the book, you can check that out. Go to kpdq.com and uh, the podcast for that part of the conversation and the rest of the program can be found there. Well, Iran's economy is on the brink thanks to the Trump administration's sanctions. That's according to the International Monetary Fund. Now, that was the thinking behind these sanctions was to try to uh, cripple Iran to the point where they would withdraw their Uh, nefarious activities all around the globe involving terrorism. Apparently, Iran is in deep recession with inflation at roughly 40 percent, the organization said, marking the highest such level since 1980. The crisis is intensifying a chasm between President Hassan Rouhani's allies and those who oppose diplomatic exchanges with the U.S. government, the Financial Times noted. And Iran's problems are expected only to worsen once the president's promised sanctions on the leading buyers of the Islamic Republic's oil take effect. They include Japan, South Korea, Turkey, India, and China. That announcement was made last week, and they've been given a certain length of time 
uh, to respond. Well, the administration had granted oil sanction waivers when it uh, reimposed sanctions on Iran after the president pulled the U.S. out of the landmark nuclear deal. Uh, Trump has declared the landmark agreement horrible, leaving the Iranian government flush with cash to fuel conflict in the Middle East. Iran has accused the U.S. of um, reneging on the nuclear agreement signed by the Obama administration and uh, of causing Iran's economic unrest. The Trump administration is trying to further ramp up pressure on the country by strangling the revenue it gets from oil experts. And those oil sanction waivers were granted in part to give the countries that had been granted them more time to find alternative in, uh, energy sources, but also to prevent a shock to global oil markets from the sudden removal of Iranian crude. The Iranian government is responding defiantly, but they may not have the capacity to engage around the world in terrorist activities and underwriting organizations who do if their economy continues to tank. Well, last week, the New York Times published a cartoon so anti-Semitic that Brett Stevens wrote in his Times column that it was an image that in another age might have been published in the pages of Der Strömer. Uh, which was the Nazi major anti-Semitic newspaper. Well, the Times columnist charged the Times with publishing the Nazi-like cartoon. Uh, it's quite a moment in American publishing history. For those who hadn't seen the cartoon, here's his description of it. The Jew in the form of a dog, the small but wily Jew leading the dumb and trusting American, the hated Trump being Judaized uh, with a skull cap, the, nominate, the nominal a servant acting as the true master. The cartoon checked so many anti-Semitic boxes that the only thing missing was a dollar sign, which might have been uh, somewhere on the uh, the image that we just didn't see. Well, for those naifs and Israel haters who dismiss these depictions as merely anti-Zionist or anti-Israel, but not anti-Semitic, the yarmulke on uh, Trump's head should be the giveaway, as should the theme itself, the Jew leading the Gentile astray, one of the oldest anti-Semitic canards. Well, of course, the cartoon isn't just about Israel or the Jews. It's about Trump, whom the left uh, so hates. It depicts uh, him as the stooge of both Vladimir Putin and Netanyahu. There's no truth to either depiction, but if truth mattered, uh, there would be, uh, well, no cartoon, no newspaper. Truth is uh, a value uh, that is not embraced by all. Um, so the question is, why would the New York Times publish in the city where more Jews live than any other city in the world outside of Israel, whose publisher is a Jew and whose editors are disproportionately Jewish, uh, publish a Nazi-like anti-Semitic cartoon. Well, this is Stephen's answer. And again, he uh, is associated with the paper. For sometimes readers, as or as often former readers, the answer is clear. The, ten- the Times has a Jewish problem, a long-standing Jewish problem dating back to World War II, when it mostly buried news about the Holocaust and continued uh, into the present day in the form of intensely adversarial coverage of Israel. The criticism goes double when it comes to the editorial pages, whose overall approach toward the Jewish state tends to range, with some notable exceptions, from tut-tutting disappointment to thunderous condemnation. For these readers, the cartoon would have uh, come like a slip of the tongue that reveals the deeper institutional prejudice. What was long suspected is at last revealed. Well, Stevens continues. How have even the most blatant expressions of anti-Semitism become most undetectable to editors who think it's part of their job to stand up to bigotry? The reason is the almost torrential criticism of Israel and the mainstreaming of anti-Zionism, including by this paper, which has become so common, and again, we're talking about the New York Times. This is a New York Times columnist 
uh, commenting on a um, cartoon that appeared in the paper, which has become so common that people have been desensitized to its inherent bigotry. So long as anti-Semitic arguments or images are framed, however speciously, as commentary about Israel, there will be a tendency to view them as a form of political opinion, not ethnic prejudice. But as I noted in the Sunday Review essay in February, anti-Zionism all, is all but indistinguishable from anti-Semitism in practice and often in intent, however much progressives try to deny this. Exactly right, uh, as was written in Why the Jews, the Reason for Anti-Semitism, for, uh, 40 years before Stevens wrote his column, there is no difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Of course, one can criticize Israel just as one can criticize any country, but that is not anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism uh, rather, is not criticism of Israel, it's a hatred of Israel, a hatred greater than that of any other country, and a delegitimization of Zionism, the movement to reestablish the Jewish national home. Imagine someone who argued that establishment of an Italian state, Italy, was illegitimate and who hated Italy more than any other country in the world, yet claimed that he was in no way anti-Italian as he had Italian friends and loved Italian culture. No one would believe such an absurdity. We aren't, uh, why aren't most American Jews troubled by the Times cartoon? Why were all American Jews horrified by the anti-Semitic shootings at the California synagogue this past weekend, while most barely had their feathers ruffled by the anti-Semitic cartoon in one of the most influential media in America? The answer is most American Jews, while ethnically Jewish, are ethically leftist. The ethics trump ethnicity, as they should. For most uh, American Jews, therefore, the Times is far more consonant with their ethical values than our Jewish values. If by Jewish values we are talking about the Torah, the traditional Jewish religion, moral teachings, and so on. So then, when you combine hatred of the right-wing prime minister of Israel and reverence for the left-wing Times, even a Nazi-like cartoon, if... Uh, it negatively depicts Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump and is published in the New York Times. It's no big deal. A rather interesting observation on a cartoon for which the New York Times sort of didn't apologize for, but sort of attempted to sort of kind of do that. Hasn't yet been received. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the rabbi who was shot inside a Southern California synagogue on the last day of Passover said Sunday that it was nothing short of a miracle that the gunman's semi-automatic rifle jammed and prevented what should have been, what would have been, a bloodbath. The rabbi Goldstein appeared in bandages during a press conference outside the uh, uh, the temple on Sunday, he lost his index finger after being shot in a shooting spree that killed one and injured three. Two worshipers, 34-year-old uh, and an 8-year-old, suffered shrapnel wounds. He said he looked up on uh, Saturday and saw a young man wearing sunglasses standing in front of him with a rifle. He said he lifted his hands and was shot. He said he lost an index finger and then uh, the shooter, miraculously, the gun jammed. There was a room nearby that was crowded with people and children. It could have been much worse. I don't even want to think about it. Well, the 19-year-old was arrested after the attack is expected to be arraigned uh, on charges including murder and attempted murder. The Los Angeles Times reported that Goldstein uh, recently asked a Border Patrol agent to attend the temple while uh, armed, and it apparently paid off. The agent gave chase to the suspect and fired as he sped off. A 60-year-old died of injuries she sustained in that shooting near San Diego. 
Um, she is believed to have thrown herself in front of the rabbi, possibly saving his life. One witness told the Los Angeles Times that her husband began to do CPR on the injured person, was overcome when he realized the person uh, for whom he was doing CPR was his wife. An online manifesto was written by the shooter identifying himself, saying that he was inspired by the mass shooting at the two New Zealand mosque uh, events that killed 50 Muslims last month. Well, as I mentioned, the doctor who began CPR on the woman killed on Saturday in the shooting at, in Southern California at the synagogue fainted when he realized that the person he was trying to revive was his wife. Lori Gilbert K, 60, died of injuries she sustained in that shooting at the um, at the temple near San Diego. Three others were hurt. Uh, she's believed to have thrown herself in front of the rabbi. The San Diego Union Tribune reports that uh, her husband, a physician, was in the synagogue when the gunshots started. Worshippers called to him to help victims, and he began to do CPR on one until he realized that one was his wife, Lori. Um, mm, uh, God picked her to die to send a message because she's such an incredible person, uh, says uh, one of the Dr. Um, Renit Lev, who was also at the scene. Um, John Ernest, a 19-year-old who was arrested, uh, uh, was apprehended, as mentioned a moment ago, following this uh, this whole thing. Also, the FBI says it got tips about the threatening social media post about five minutes before the attack on the synagogue uh, took place. In a statement to the Associated Press, the FBI said that it got word about the anonymous post through its tip website and phone line just before the attack took place on Saturday. They say the tip uh, included a link to the post but didn't offer specific information about its author or the location threatened. The Bureau says its employees immediately took, uh, took action to identify who wrote the post, but the shooting took place before they finished. The attack killed uh, one, as we mentioned uh, earlier. Well, Liberal Democrats' ambitious plan to transfer Americans to a government-run Medicare-for-all system took a step forward Tuesday as the House held an emotional first hearing for the proposal. The Republicans vigorously pushed back, warning the program would offer inferior health care at tremendous cost. The Rules Committee hearing was held uh, to look at the 2019 Medicare-for-all Act introduced by Representatives uh, Pramila Jayapal and Debbie Dingell, and co-sponsored by more than 100 House Democrats. Presidential candidate um, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren have all endorsed some version of the proposal, bringing the plan from the party's fringes into the Democratic mainstream as the 2020 election nears. The hearing was an emotional one, particularly during the uh, testimony of activist Addie Barkin, who was diagnosed with ALS in 2016 and testified about his struggles with the healthcare industry and getting coverage for treatment for his condition. Supporters seated near him wiped tears from their eyes as he spoke. Uh, Despite warnings that most Medicare for all plans would largely abolish private insurance, Democrats downplayed the claim from opponents that it would uh, have negative effects on Americans. People aren't going to lose their health care for Medicare for all. You'd actually get to keep your doctor and go to your hospital that you currently um, go to. Now, we've heard that promise before, so I think people are a little more skeptical this time around. Uh, we'll see if it gains any traction. Well, I mentioned earlier that Senate Democrat leader uh, Chuck Schumer said today that President Trump agreed to support a $2 trillion infrastructure spending package after meeting with him and other Democrats at the White House, though the details are not yet clear. The president, a real estate developer before he was elected president, has long sought to strike a big infrastructure deal but faced some resistance from conservatives in his party over concerns about the country's rising debt. 
Well, Democratic leaders who spoke to reporters outside the White House after meeting with the president called the meeting constructive. We agreed on a number of things, which was very, very good. Two trillion dollars for infrastructure. Originally, we started a little lower. Even the president was eager to push it up to two trillion dollars, Schumer said. The White House sent a written statement on the meeting, didn't mention a dollar figure, but called the session excellent and productive. The United States has not come even close to properly investing in infrastructure for many years, foolishly prioritizing the interests of other countries over our own. We have to invest in this country's future and bring our infrastructure to a level better than it's ever been before, the White House said, adding that the group would meet again in three weeks to discuss specific proposals and financing methods. I'm very interested in the financing methods portion of that. The Green New Deal, that's trillions of dollars. You've got this infrastructure deal, that's trillions of dollars. Medicare for all, who knows how much that will cost. I'm beginning to um, to wonder. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said there were no decisions on how to pay for the plan, which is not surprising uh, at all. Uh, the 100-odd students who gathered on the hilltop campus of Concordia College uh, or Concordia University in sunny Irvine, California, on Thursday morning, had a lot of questions for Republican Katie Porter on abortion, immigration, voting rights, and the 2020 uh, races. But as their fluorescent question cards were plunked one by one from a raffle drum, not one mentioned the topic of burning up Washington. The report uh, from Robert S. Mueller III, or Mueller, I guess he prefers. The voters in Miami who came out uh, early Wednesday to see the freshman Democrat representative uh, at Flava's restaurant lobbed uh, only a single question about uh, its inquiry about clean drinking water, fresh produce. When Representative Mike Levin, another freshman Democrat, faced his constituents in the uh, beach town of Carlsbad, California, he found himself politely disagreeing with those who worried that a possible impeachment would jeopardize Democrats' chances in 2020. And in South Philadelphia, Medicare for All, not President Trump, was the hot topic Wednesday night when four House Democrats answered constituents' questions at Tendley Temple United Methodist Church. As House Democrats returned this week to Washington after a two-week recess, they'll find a capital consumed by the report of Mr. Mueller and special counsel. Um, a private meeting of the House Democratic Caucus uh, on Tuesday promises or promised rather to be rather heated, as do House and Senate hearings tomorrow and Thursday with Attorney General William Barr. But rank and file Democrats aren't being propelled by their constituents into a headlong confrontation over impeaching the president. In town hall style meetings and meet and greet across the country this last week, constituents bemoaned. Uh, Mr. Uh, Trump's policies groaned at his refusal to heed congressional subpoenas and fretted over what they saw as an erosion of the rule of law. They were there were few signs of an uprising to demand a quick judgment that the misdeeds laid out with the special counsel's report constituted the kind of high crimes and misdemeanors worthy of trying to remove the president from office. It's not a top half dozen. It may be down to number 12 spot in terms of priorities. Ms. Porter, a freshman Democrat from California, says she hears far more from her Orange County constituents that uh, dissatisfaction with Mr. Trump should be channeled into voting him out of office in 2020. And that seems to be the consensus, the growing consensus. A Washington Post ABC News poll released on Friday appeared to underscore the Democrats' dilemma. It found that roughly six in 10 Democrats supported beginning impeachment proceedings against Mr. Trump, most of them strongly, but almost nine in 10 Republicans and six in 10 independents, which the Democrats a need to defeat Mr. Trump, oppose the idea. So the dilemma will be, where do you uh, put your time and energy leading up to the 2020 elections? And that will be a rather interesting uh, thing to, to watch.
I don't know how much time I have. I don't, I don't have time to get into these other stories. So I'll take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Are you saying no, I don't need to take a quick break? No, I don't. Okay, well, I'll talk about this. Um, a plan to raise billions of dollars in new business taxes to fund improvements to Oregon public schools and early childhood programs cleared a key hurdle in the Oregon legislature last night. It passed out of a committee on a party line vote. Of course, everything in the Oregon legislature essentially is on a party line vote. One Republican to 50 Democrats. Democrats top priority. This legislative session is now scheduled to receive a House floor vote tomorrow, just one day later than the timeline set by party leaders in recent weeks. Lawmakers on the panel characterized the package as a game changer for the state and its children. Key lawmakers reached a surprise last minute deal with the state's biggest business group to grant a higher deduction for the cost of labor or materials, which could help manufacturers or other businesses with high input costs. The deal also calls for a slightly higher tax rate. So the total tax raised would still add up to rather two billion dollars every two years. Well, the influential business group in turn signaled it won't pursue or fund an effort to refer the tax and school funding question to voters, saying we feel comfortable with the direction that this conversation is going and we will uh, be neutral on the tax proposal. That's from the Oregon Business and Industry President Sandra McDonough. In response, Democratic Senator Mark Haas of Beaverton uh, said that um, uh, McDonough has an impossible job. Uh, the business community in this state is so diverse um, the new tax, the bill approved in committee Monday, might aim to raise some $2 billion in new business taxes for schools, which means the cost of living in Oregon was likely to go up. The tax won't kick in immediately, though, and so um, would raise a little less than half that in the next two years. Businesses would pay a tax of 0.57% in ta- sales inside Oregon above uh, $1 million. Groceries, gas, hospitals, long-term care businesses would be exempt. Businesses can subtract 35% of their labor or capital costs from total sales to offset anticipated increases in consumer prices. The plan cuts personal income tax rates by 0.25 percentage points for the lowest three uh, of the state's four tax brackets. Multi-billion dollar tax plan for schools advanced in a last-minute deal in the Oregon House. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, you might recall some months back, um, New York wanted to lead the way in uh, how abortions could be conducted in that state. Well, we learned clear back in 2015, they were still leading in ways that, well, aren't together altogether flattering. The number of babies aborted at a gestational age of 21 weeks or later in New York City in 2015 outnumbered homicide victims in that city uh, that year by 1,485 to 352. Now, according to the latest abortion data available for the Centers uh, for Disease Control and Prevention and the homicide data for that year published by the New York Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Now, while there were approximately 0.96 people per day victimized by murder and non-negligent manslaughter in uh, New York City in 2015, there were approximately 4.1 babies at 21 weeks gestational age or older who were aborted per day in that same city. We're just talking about those aborted at a gestational age of 21 weeks or older. That doesn't include those abortions that took place for much younger um, unborn children. Well, despite this, the New York Times ran a story on Sunday that said abortions occurring at 21 weeks or later in the United States are rare. 
It referenced and linked to another story the Times had published back in February that referred to abortions occurring at 21 weeks or later as very rare. Apparently, that's not the case in New York City, dating all the way back to 2015. Well, the story on Sunday criticized the president for what it called the latest in a long string of incendiary statements from the president on abortion. So what kind of statements should one make about the process, uh, the um, procedure that ends the life of a developing human child. Well, the February 6th story criticized the president for things he said about abortion in his State of the Union address. These statements from Trump included lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And the New York Times refers to this as incendiary. He also said to defend the dignity of every person. I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's womb. Again, another incendiary comment made by the president, according to The New York Times. Well, the president's statement about the New York lawmakers referred to the Reproductive Health Act that the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, signed in January In its February 6th story, the New York Times summarized that law this way. The new state law says a health provider may perform an abortion in the state before 24 weeks and later if the fetus is not considered viable or if the procedure is considered necessary to protect the woman's life or health. And we know that life or health is a very broad definition of the circumstances under which this procedure would be allowed in New York City. Those are all similar to stipulations made by the Supreme Court, they went on to say. Well, the fact is, in its 1973 opinion, Doe versus Bolton, which was released at the same time as Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court broadly defined the health consideration needed to justify an abortion to include such things as physical, emotional, psychological, familial factors, and the woman's age. Neither the Times story published in February nor the one that was published on Sunday cited the actual number of late-term abortions that took place in the United States or in New York City in 2015. And its story, published on February 6th, to be more precise, the Times said, How common is it? Very rare. The most recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that about 1.3% of abortions performed in the United States in 2015 occur in or after the 21st week of pregnancy. In its April 28th story, which linked the earlier story, the Times said the New York Times has previously fact-checked these claims, finding that late-term abortions are rare. Now, you use the word rare, um, and it uh, doesn't require any clarity. How many are we talking about? I mean, is it okay to kill a baby when they're viable outside the womb five times or ten times or 25 times? I mean, where, you know, when is it uh, no longer considered rare and acceptable or unacceptable in this case? Well, the CDC data that the New York Times referenced in its February 6th story when it said about 1.3 percent of abortions performed in the United States in 2015 occurred in or after uh, the 21st week of pregnancy was published in Table 7 of the Centers for Disease Control's report, Abortion Surveillance, United States 2015. That report that was released in November of 2018 includes the most recent abortion data published by the um, Center for Disease Control. And that table lists the number of abortions performed by gestational age in 39 states and New York City, which were uh, the 40 jurisdictions that reported their 2015 abortions by gestational age. Well, the footnote attached to that table says 11 states in the District of Columbia were not included in the table's data on abortions 
uh, using this uh, criterion. As the CDC puts it, they did not report, did not report by gestational age or did not meet reporting standards. These non-reporting states, including California, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York State, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Wyoming. Unlike New York State, which did not report its abortions by gestational age, New York City did. Well, in New York City and the 39 states that did report their abortions using this, uh, uh, this measure, there were 428,042 total abortions at a known gestational age in 2015, according to the CDC. Now, is that rare? 428,042. Of these, 5,597 were performed on babies 21 weeks gestational age or older, and it goes on from there. So incendiary remarks, uh, what constitutes, according to the New York Times standard, is any effort to protect the lives of viable children. And the president was referring to those who are viable um, as having a right to live. Hmm. A new uh, United Nations report notes that for the first time in our world's recorded history, the world has more elderly folks aged 65 years and up than kids birth to five years of age. And demographers track these data, not for trivia night, but to anticipate future economic consequences, the impact to health care systems, the need of infrastructure and housing and the implications of other policies and politics. In 2018, the number of seniors were tallied at 705 million, while there were 680 million kids uh, five and under. That gap is projected to widen as years pass. And that means uh, the math isn't adding up to a sustainable future. First, It's an important premise to understand that each of the ideas contributing to the decline in birth, um, the birth rate, are born out of the belief that the more educated, sophisticated individuals all align on the left and therefore the philosophies espoused by this collective must truly reflect not only intellectual superiority but also the moral high ground. Second, due to medical and technological advances, we're living longer. As the birth rate has fallen from almost five children per family in the 1960s to 2.4 now, the aging population is living longer, magnifying the consequence of this demographic shift. In the 1960, the average lifespan globally was about 52 years of age. Now it's up to 72 years of age. But as has been addressed um, uh, throughout these years, the abuse and addictions of drugs, including opioids, has trimmed that down to the mid-70s. But what exactly are these enlightened notions that are influencing fewer babies per family unit? First, the new religion that's actually ancient, each worship, um, or rather earth worship, has taught folks that humanity is toxic to our planet, singular as far as we uh, know in the universe, with its balance of light, darkness, water, land, and atmospheric gases that foster living growth and homeostasis. Whether it's uh, the new uh, darling on the left, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or some other climate alarmist, they're spreading a fear that the earth will dest- uh, be destroyed by man-made um, climate change and, for that matter, just simply existing. Never mind that the Ice Age and so many other um, eras and eons involving continental shifts and massive land movements that occurred prior to large human populations and advances like fossil fuels and combustible engines, the indoctrination of death is Uh, by weather is real. A second foundational belief that serves as one of the most critical drivers of the uh, 
A political left in particular involves the value of being a mother. The thinking goes on the highly educated left that if a woman is educated and empowered, she must surely not be burdened by serving as a host to another organism that will be dependent upon her for several years and look to her and to her other chromosomal contributor, sometimes known as dad, to serve as the first teacher and models for the maturing child's behavior. Hence, it must be established that abortion on demand is a mandatory part of learning uh, any learning approach, uh, learned approach to life uh, to ensure any females not hindered in reaching her maximum potential. The number of abortions performed in the U.S. since Roe v.ersus Wade in 1973 totals over 61.2 million worldwide. Since 1980, the number of deaths to unborn children via abortion exceeds 1.5 billion. Yeah, over a billion baby deaths have empowered women. I don't see how that math adds up. Never mind that when a woman conceives and carries the miracle of a baby formed from the DNA of two separate individuals, she is ensuring her legacy for at least one more generation. Women through birth and childbearing cannot just leave their singular mark on our society through personal accomplishments, but to fashion a life into existence that will in turn echo the beliefs and behavior instilled to potentially repeat the cycle. The prevailing stance on the so many in the political left, not all, uh, is to instead replicate thought, behavior and beliefs through indoctrination and activism, not the legacy of family. And therefore, the demographic balance, the shift that we're seeing occur is threatening the future of the planet in ways that climate change cannot touch. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, what's your church? Well, that's one of the questions in certain parts of the U.S. That's still one of the most frequently asked questions you hear from people who are meeting for the first time. Maybe not here, but in other parts of the country. A new survey by Gallup, however, finds that membership in religious congregations is plummeting. Only half or 50 percent of the public report that... They're a member of a house of worship, a church, synagogue, or mosque. This represents a precipitous decline over the past few years. In 2013, for example, just five years earlier, nearly 6 in 10, or 59% of Americans, said that they were a member of a religious congregation. Well, the drop marks the first time in the history of Gallup's polling, which stretches back to 1938, that fewer than a majority of the public reported belonging to a religious congregation. First time. Younger and older Americans are increasingly inhabiting completely different religious planets. Again, referring to Gallup, only 42 percent of millennials claim membership in a religious congregation prepared to more than two thirds or 68 percent of traditionalists, as they're referred to in this survey, sometimes referred to as the silent generation, the cohort born between or rather in or before 1945. Even more notable than the 26-point generation gap between America's oldest and youngest adults is that only 57% of religious millennials, those who identify with a religious tradition, report being a member of a congregation. Nowhere has the disparity in church membership become more acute than between Democrats and Republicans. Now, don't read too much into this. I'm just simply quoting from the poll. I'm not trying to make a political point. Uh, But Gallup reports that in the late 1990s, more than seven in 10 Democrats or 71 percent and 77 percent of Republicans said that they belonged to a congregation. Today, fewer than half, 48 percent of Democrats are members of the church, synagogue or mosque, 
while 69 percent of Republicans are. Again, neither number is impressive. Well, there's a yawning divide between America's conservatives and liberals when it comes to congregational membership or community in the church or other religious organizations, while two-thirds or 67 percent of conservatives report that they belong to a place of worship. Only 37 percent of liberals say the same. In the late 1990s, the majority of liberals, or 56 percent, claimed membership in a religious congregation. And the religious gap between married and unmarried Americans has also grown over the last two decades. Today, fewer than half or 45 percent of unmarried Americans report being members in a religious congregation compared to 59 percent of married Americans. In the late 90s, marital status made much less difference in the likelihood that one belonged to a church. 64 percent of unmarried Americans, 71 percent of married Americans were members of a church or other house of worship at that time. Well, the 2018 General Social Survey found that nearly one in four or 23 percent of Americans are now religiously unaffiliated. But twice as many members of the public no longer claim membership in a formal religious community at all. And while belief in God remains strong in the United States, if perhaps more varied than previously thought, the vitality of religious life depends on regular association and interaction uh, that congregational membership provides. And Americans are simply choosing not to engage in that kind of community. Now, the Gallup survey is the U.S. church membership down sharply in past two decades survey. Jeffrey Jones is the author of it. I would encourage you to check that out, particularly in church leadership. Uh, It gives us a brief snapshot of where uh, the country stands in terms of our understanding of the need for Uh, religious community, whether we're talking about um, a mosque or some other religion, but certainly from a Christian perspective, engagement in the church. They didn't break it down by uh, if Muslims were more committed to fellowshipping than other groups or if Christians, the numbers would have been higher. But this does give you a rather useful glimpse um, and perhaps warning about the future uh, where we're likely to be headed. Well, taking a look at the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Valerie Burton. She is, no, that's not right. Is that right, James? I don't think that's right. I think we're going to talk with Ken Harrison tomorrow. Um, The Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. The book is published by Multnomah, and I think we had to move Valerie Burton around. So anyway, we'll talk with Ken Harrison tomorrow. Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. Also want to remind you, Ladies in particular, that we have an opportunity to fellowship um, one uh, with another. We have our comedy night that's coming up this Friday night, 7 o'clock p.m. It's at Tigard Christian Church. We're going to have a great time with Amy Barnes. But in addition to that, following her presentation, uh, we're going to have some uh, refreshment. There's some desserts and coffee and tea and just a great time we'll be Um, taking pictures and all kinds of stuff. So I hope you will join us. The cost is $20. If you're in a group of five or more, there's a $5 discount per ticket. So check that out. You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. Again, kpdq.com. A lot of things happening this weekend. You have Prayer Connection coming up. Uh, And you also have the Singing Christmas Trees auction. You can go to their respective websites for more details. Or you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. And I have links to... Uh, each of their websites for more information. So do check that out. Um, It's always a good resource for finding out what's going on in our community. And I would encourage you to to take full advantage of the website for a resource. Uh, One final reminder, the TBN program for women by women, Better Together, is in its second week. There are three ways you can watch it. You can download the TBN app. 
You can watch it in real time, 1030 a.m., Monday through Friday, at TBN The Network. Uh, You can also go to uh, bettertogether.tv, and you can sign up so that you can watch the program streaming whenever it's convenient for you. So do check that out. It's a program that goes a little deeper and broader than uh, you might anticipate. And I mentioned earlier, and I wasn't attempting to be insulting, but just to convey that uh, it's really an up-to-date program. It features all kinds of women, many of whom you would recognize as musicians and Bible teachers and authors and so on. Uh, The set of the program is 21st century, and the conversation is honest, it's deep, it's vulnerable, and I think you'll enjoy Better Together. Again, on TBN, 1030 a.m. Monday through Friday, uh, live, and you can uh, check it out also at uh, TBN's website or bettertogether.tv, and you can uh, download the uh, app and watch it streaming. So there you have it. want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. Tomorrow we'll talk with uh, Ken Harrison, Rise of the Servant Kings, What the Bible Says About Being a Man. The book is published by Multnomah. Um, and I want to thank, um, thank you for joining us, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope we can talk again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.